0: Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we're we're having a, a small celebration. We're joined by Dr. Claire St. Peter, Claire has been on our podcast before. She's a behavioral analyst. She's currently a professor of psychology at the uh, West Virginia University. She has as her major emphasis, her research focuses on improving outcomes for children who struggle in school, identifying generative effects of extinction, determining how well reinforcement-based teaching procedures work in application by novice implementers and teaching others to use behavioral approaches. That's the professional bio in shortened down. Claire is also a horse person which brought us together and I certainly have very much been enjoying sharing my work with Claire and we have fun sharing back and forth. We've had some really great conversations. And last fall, the, uh, and I always have to be careful that I get all the, all the words in the right order on these journals, but the uh, journal of the experimental analysis of behavior uh, sent out a call for articles in which they were interested in connecting the worlds of the applied use of behavioral analysis, those of us who work in the training world with the academic world. And they, so they were looking for papers that would make some of the connections between that. And Claire uh, contacted me and said, you know, we should do an article together. And so we did. So Claire, welcome. And, and so what did we create together?
1: Um, lots of rabbit holes, mostly, I think. Um I, so like every good project, I, I feel like the best projects are the ones that leave you excited to continue to explore other aspects and where you feel like you um, you learn new things and and particularly in writing, when you write about things, I think it it forces you to look at what it is that you're saying in a, in a very detailed way. And I, I think that we put together this paper about loopy training and connected it to the existing behavior analytic literature, some old and some new, uh, and looked for where those connections really were. And also I think along the way, I definitely, refined my understanding of what it meant to do loopy training and, and what all the, those details were and, and why you would explore them in, in one way and why you might approach it in a certain way and, and how you could pivot if something wasn't going, if your loops weren't clean, uh, so to speak. So yeah, we got it put together and sent off um, in time for the special issue and we're fortunate enough to have it accepted And so it is now available to the scholarly community, which I think is really exciting. Uh, So one of the things that I'm really interested in exploring today um, with you, Alex, is, is you've written a lot in a lot of different formats. You're certainly a very prolific author. And I wondered how the writing process for a scientific paper ended up being different for you or similar to the other kinds of writing
0: that you've done. Well, I found it to be a lot of fun collaborating with you because we come from two, I would say two very different perspectives and different language sets. And that was one of the things, reasons that I was particularly interested in when you you know when we talked about this, I thought this would be a really interesting project to do together because I'm always intrigued when when we're chatting with one another, having a Zoom conversation, or you're participating in the online clinics that that I've had. When I see you looking over to the side and making a side note, and I say, "Oh, something that we're talking about is just intrigued, Claire. What is it? What is it? You know, something. This is this is connecting with your day job, as it were. What is it that?" from your perspective and the background in behavioral analysis that you bring. And and I'm understanding that there are, uh, just as there are in any field, that there isn't a one size fits all. This was the standard curriculum of what everybody who studies behavioral analysis, you come out as cookie cutter rubber stamps. You come out very much with your own unique perspective on the academic field. And so it was very interesting for me to see, oh, that's intriguing, Claire. What is it that, about that that's of interest? And so when you became really interested in the loopy training, it was, okay, why, why is this of such interest for you? And what are you seeing in it, drawing from your background uh, in the teaching, the working with children. And I think that ties into your question about the writing.
1: Yeah. So I think, I mean, one of the things that you said when you introduced me is that I'm really interested in helping kids who are struggling in school. And so I am also then very interested in teaching teachers. So how do we equip teachers? And teachers are underpaid and overtaxed. And one of the things that is, has not necessarily been well done in behavior analysis is considering the implementer side of things. And I think that this might be in part because a lot of our work early on was mechanized. So The early, early work, I mean, way, even way earlier than modern behavior analysis. So you go all the way back to like Thorndike and Skinner and you had cats in puzzle boxes. So you didn't have a human who was there, you know, figuring out when to trigger a door Um, for Skinner's early work, where he had pigeons who were pecking at keys in chambers or rats who were pressing levers in chambers. All of that was automated. So. It, the delivery of reinforcers was, was automated. When the rat hit a certain criteria of lever pressing, a food pellet was dispensed. Or when the pigeon pecked the key a certain number of times, um, a food hopper would be raised that would give them access to food. And maybe as a function of that, even modern behavior analysis doesn't do a spectacular job of considering the implementer side of the loop. And so one of the things that, that was really important to me about this idea of loopy training is it's, it's non-linearity, right? It's not just the consideration of the learner's behavior. And I think we put so much emphasis on what is the animal doing, right. is the animal meeting criteria, you know, that it is easy to lose sight of the fact that you are also a behaving organism. And hopefully, I think if you're doing it well, a learner, right? Like you are learning from your animal's behavior, you are reacting to what your animal is doing, you are changing criteria and titrating things. Um, and so I thought like, this is spectacular, it, it relates a lot to that side of, of my work, where I've done a, a lot of work focusing on what in behavior analysis is called procedural fidelity, or um, treatment integrity, implementation fidelity, right? Like how how well is the implementer doing the things that the implementer needs to be doing to change the behavior of um, the learner in the situation or the student in the situation? And I thought it was so useful to put that in a cohesive framework, right? That we really haven't done well in behavior analysis. And so it's neat to kind of link that side of the loopy training world to this completely different portion of my academic life where we're working with teachers and working with students and trying to get people who don't have a ton of background in behavior analysis. They don't have formal training and implementation of reinforcement contingencies, uh, but they need to be doing it to make their students successful or to make their learners successful. So that was a really cool piece for me.
0: That's a, a fascinating piece, actually, because the role of the handlers. It's so very much a part of the animal training. We are partners with our animal learners, and presumably we are influenced, and our and we change our behavior based upon what the animals are doing. And yet, even so, within horse training, the focus is often on blame the horse. Don't don't look at what the hand, the handler's role in that. And in loopy training, it's saying. Let's look at this dance that exists between the horse and the handler. And that's always been a key element of the training, that we have a role in this. So that's fun to hear you articulate that so clearly of why that was intriguing to you when we started looking, bringing the, the loopy training to the forefront as we were going through some of the horse clinics, you know, why you were jotting off to the side. <laughs>
1: Well, that's just one of many reasons, I suppose, why I was jotting off to the side. But for, oh gosh, at least 15 years, probably closer to 20 years now, I've been really interested in implementation inconsistencies, right? So there's unpredictability that can slide into the loops on the handler side, on the implementer side. And like, what do those inconsistencies do to learning? and, and how can they deteriorate learning outcomes? And so, um, but we've, I've never had a great framework to talk about it. So it's, it's interesting. I feel like, you know, I have to sometimes be a little careful about saying how much I'm pulling from animal training into work with supporting learners in schools. Although I think certainly I wish that all children were treated as well as my own horses are treated, but it, it certainly is, it's, interesting to think about making those loops clean on both sides right like what is the handler doing how consistent is the handler being you know are you feeding in the same place are you feeding in a way that the the horse knows where to expect the food is your hand moving all over the place and what does that what do those inconsistencies do so that's that's part of what fascinated me about loopy training but of course there's a bunch to learn and we don't i'm making it sound like the article is is about how to connect loopy training to implementation inconsistencies and that's not what we ended up really writing about because i think we needed the behavior analyst audience needed a foundational paper to talk about you know what is this approach and and how is it similar to things that behavior analysts are talking
2: about because this this concept or this those two words loopy training in the academic world no one uses this is that correct that is correct. Yes. Yes. But we we know that on our side as trainers, it has since Alex and Jesus came up with this, it has changed everything. So it's become really important in our community. Yes.
0: And you know, it always goes back to that wonderful conversation that I had with Jesus in his office when we were getting ready to film the poison Q DVD. And he said, you know what, your work and Kay Lawrence's and Ken Ramirez's work have in common and that really intrigues me is that you train in loops. You know, that didn't when he said you train in loops, that those words didn't mean anything to me at that time. What do you mean by that? And then he showed me that great video that and we described this in the article, a great video that Kay Lawrence produced where uh, one of her students is sitting in a chair and she has a dog out in front of her, and the handler throws food out well out in front and the dog runs out, gets the food, and then immediately turns back towards the handler. And as the dog is turning back towards the handler, the handler clicks and then tosses food out again so that you get this repeating cycle of behavior. And it was so clean because the dog understood the reinforcement process. So there's no waste there's no, what, one of the things you might expect from a dog is that he, uh, the dog would run out, get the food and then go, oh, this carpet smells wonderful. Let me go continue to sniff and, and maybe there'll be some more kibble somewhere. And then five minutes later, the dog comes back to the human and says, um, are you interesting? Because I've just exhausted what the carpet has to show for me. And you have no, you, you can't train if you're reinforcement. You can't train efficiently. If your reinforcement process is not well-defined and well-understood by the learner. And so you, you had that that clarity of this is this nice, clean, repeating loop of behavior. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful example. And then I went home and thought about it and said, oh, you know, he's, he's right. This is how I train. I do train in these repeating loops. It's how... I, even actually before clicker training, I was training in repeating loops, but they didn't have the elegance of adding in the reinforcement process. But that repeatability is, and that starting with a really small weight shift and then expanding that out, it's just, how else would you train? Yeah. Well, how else would you do it? There's There are, there are of course, lots of other ways that you could do it. Yes. And, and I've actually done lots of other ways, and it's usually pretty crude and clumsy when I'm doing it other ways. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think the other thing that is, to borrow one of your words sneaky, about the approach of loopy training, though, is not being, um, is being oriented towards action, right? So you're not, everything is a movement, and you're looking for movement, even when what you eventually want is a still calm horse. The way that you build that is through movement. And I think that's a, that's a piece that is really worth behavior analysts thinking about. And I can tell a story about that in just a second. And then the other component is not being so focused on what the final performance looks like in that, those stimulus conditions. Uh, And I think that that The trailer loading example that you talk about in your clinics and that we put in the paper that's in a table with several other examples about how you might start if you're working on trailer loading, you might start by stepping onto a mat, right? And stepping onto a different mat. And this is not necessarily the, the strict linear approach of taking one step towards the trailer. Now take two steps towards the trailer like you might do in a, in a linear shaping approach. And that's what I, the latter is what I see a lot in both research and clinical practice. And I think it's interesting to explore these different ideas about how you might get to a final performance by approaching it in a completely different stimulus arrangement uh, than than the final one. And I think this is particularly important for learners like mine, where there are a lot of, of stimulus arrangements of situations that are pretty unfavorable. And if you start right there, it's gonna be a, a long process to get them happy and relaxed within that context. And if you could start in a different context, you might um, make, be able to make better, faster progress.
0: Now, an example of that would be if you have a horse who's been, we say, made to lunge in a command-based paradigm, and you have uh, acquired that horse, and one of the activities that you would like to be able to do is to lunge your horse for various reasons that are great reasons, exercise, being able to watch your beautiful horse move in a beautiful way, whatever whatever the reason is, you would like to be able to lunge your horse. But when you put the lunge line on and you take the horse out into the arena, you have a really reluctant participant. Your horse just goes flat. So you have this bubbly, enthusiastic, oh, I can hardly wait to be with you, clicker train, horse who just loves the work, and then you put him in the context of, and now we're going to lunge, and it's as though you let all the air, air out of the tires. A great Poison cue scenario, but you still want to lunge the horse, and so you take the horse out of that context, and you teach the horse, for example, to go to mats, and you think, well, that's not lunging, you know, and you teach the horse to follow targets. Well, that's not lunging. And you teach the horse basic leading, but you don't do it in a normal way. You do it by putting the horse in a stall with a stall guard across the door and holding a target up. And when the horse comes forward to touch the target and you feed, so he backs up and it doesn't look like anything that even resembles leading, but you're teaching all the basic body language cues of leading. And then you take your horse out into the arena and you set out a circle of cones and you put mats around the cones and you teach the horse to go from mat to mat to mat. And, and then you start fading out the mats. And before you know it, you've got this horse who is going around a circle of cones on a line at Liberty. And he's bubbly again because that initial presentation, that, the process of getting there did not resemble anything that, to the horse, seemed like he was being lunged. It was a really sneaky, side-door, multi-step process of recreating an outcome, but through a very different process. And that's what, that's what the Voopie training process gives us?
2: So I want to go back to your question, uh, Claire, the, because I don't feel we've we've had the full answer. I'm sure it's not the first time that animal training practitioner writes or collaborates in a paper, a scientific paper. Probably it has happened before, but it's still a pretty big deal. I mean, for me anyway, I was very excited and proud when Alex said to me that this paper was coming out in a way too, because I guess it, It validates when every time you see the science validate what we're, how we're training, it feels good to me. And yes, Alex is a prolific writer and she, she writes very well, but this is kind of different because, you know, you're, so you're, the two of you are collaborating in this paper. And as usual in a scientific paper, whenever you talk about your own work, you don't say I, you talk third person you know, and you put a date in parenthesis. So tell us about that process, the two of you. How did you adapt to each other in order to produce this scientific paper? How was it back and forth? It was
0: It was uh, an interesting process. So I produced, so first of all, we're both writers. We both enjoy writing. And I think that's in part why this paper was so interesting to produce, because We are both individuals who enjoy the writing and editing process, but we are using two very different language sets, I would say. So I wrote a loopy training article sort of describing loopy training from my perspective. And I based it on, pulled a lot of material that I'd already written there. I think there was probably article in my blog. I've forgotten which which article or articles that I drew on to produce the original document that I sent to Claire. And then Claire, you wrote, based on that, you wrote your version interpretation and perspective based on that. So we sort of put those two documents together, and then we would have regular Zoom meetings where We might spend several hours chewing over a sentence or a paragraph. And we'd, you know, what are we really saying here? And sometimes we'd get to the end where we'd say, do we actually say anything? No, let's just get rid of that paragraph that we just spent two hours on. Two hours, you know, chewing over. And that precision of language. So it's in trying to be very precise. Do we end up saying something or do we end up saying nothing? And that, I think, is the great challenge. And particularly when you are merging two different language sets. And when you you say, I think I'm being very clear because, you know, as a a horse person, these are things that are commonly understood Mm -hmm. within the horse world. And then Claire would be thinking, I think I'm being very clear because from the field of behavioral analysis, these are things that are commonly understood. And then we sort of put them together and say, well, wait a minute, if I have an, an animal trainer reading this, they're gonna be confused by this language or vice versa. If I have behavioral analysts reading this, they're gonna be confused by this language. You know, are each of those individuals able to visualize and understand what it is that we're describing here. Have we been clear enough? And so for me, that was a really interesting exercise. The
1: other piece that I think is fun is challenging your own assumptions, right? Because when you sit in your own world and, and you, like I spend a lot of time talking to behavior analysts, you start to make assumptions. About things that, like, this is, of course, this is how this goes, because this is how this goes. And so we had this fascinating conversation about intermittent reinforcement at one point and like the value of the behavior and like the basic behavior analytic literature for animal trainers when so much of the basic behavior analytic literature uses intermittent reinforcement. So not every response um, produces a reinforcer. Not even every response that meets criteria produces a reinforcer. And and I look like like is
2: that for practicality or because they feel they'll get a stronger uh behavior
1: uh so there are, there are several reasons one is practicality um so when you're working horses i feel like i could feed my horse a bag of hay stretcher pellets and he would be totally fine with that so they don't um do what we call Um, They don't satiate very well, like horses, I think we could work with for some long period of time, but a lot of the animals that are used in foundational behavior, analytic work like rats and pigeons, they, they satiate on food. So part of it is, can I answer my question in a way that it's not going to take me a hundred years to do it because my sessions can only be 10 minutes before my pigeons not hungry anymore and stops pecking. So some of it is practical. Some of it, I think, is the idea that intermittent reinforcement produces behavior that's more resistant to extinction. And mm-hmm. so I think some of it is, is designed, some of the use of intermittent reinforcement is designed to answer particular questions. We had something in there about intermittent reinforcement. I don't even remember where it started, Alex, where like there's so many versions of this paper now. Um, (laughs) And I I sent something to you and your reaction was like, why would we ever use intermittent reinforcement for anything? Like we can't, what am I going to, you know, like I, I have to take this literature with some caveats, some grains of salt because I wouldn't use intermittent reinforcement. And then that got me thinking about, a subset of the behavior analytic literature that looks at transitions between favorable, more favorable and less favorable conditions and pausing, which is what happens in intermittent reinforcement and characterizes that as unwanted and disruptive behavior. And they went, oh yeah, behavior analysts do that too. Like behavior analysts think about intermittent, some of the functions of intermittent reinforcement as being problematic, and and so why do we have these disconnects in some of our own research literature where in some cases intermittent reinforcement and the pausing that it produces are viewed as valuable and in some cases it's viewed as problematic and what are those conditions and again it's this questioning of your own assumptions that you're bringing to the table and really thinking you have to think very carefully when you're trying to reach a broad audience a both broad and very specific audience about are we writing this in a way that makes clear what assumptions are going into the things that we're saying? And are we being clear about the, the conditions under which we think a certain approach is going to be valuable and how you would do that and how it relates to people who might have never worked with an animal before, right? So the readership of the journal is fairly broad in terms of behavior analysts. Some of them are doing basic laboratory work with animals and some of them aren't. And so it is, you know, a a readership where we wanted to make sure it was consumable by animal trainers. That was something that was really important to us. And we wanted to make sure that it was consumable by behavior analysts broadly, those working in animal training and those working with animals and those not, those working with humans. And so that's, that's a tall task.
2: It is, but I think you because I started reading the article. I think you've succeeded very, very much actually. How many versions were there? Dozens. <laughs> Dozens. Yeah, I don't.
1: <laughs> I didn't. I didn't count. And sometimes, you know, Alex, straight like the version. I don't know how long we spent on the abstract. The abstract yes. we spent many hours.
2: Yes, over multiple Zoom meetings. Yeah. And you were at that time, you were you were doing all this work, but you weren't sure that the paper would be accepted by the journal, correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. correct. Yeah. It's a peer-reviewed journal. And so you submit and it goes out, it is assigned. So it when you submit, it goes through a checking process. The reviews are all blind. So the people who reviewed it don't know who wrote it. Um, and okay. this is part of the reason why you end up talking about yourself and In funny third person kinds of ways. (laughs) And so it's it's sent to the journal and they check to make sure that it's really blinded. And then they assign it to what's called an associate editor. So the peer reviewed journals have an editor in chief, and then a handful of associate editors. For this special issue, they had selected associate editors who had expertise in applied animal behavior and animal training. And so... Our associate editor um, was Christy Ollygood, who has been working at Disney's Animal Kingdom for a while. The interesting thing about JAB um, in its sister journal, the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, is at the very end it tells you who the associate editor was. So those two journals, that's public information. That's not the case for all journals. So it went, it was assigned to the associate editor, and then the associate editor picks a handful of reviewers. Um, and so the associate editor knows who wrote it. That's important, so that they don't they don't look at it and go like, "Well, this is a paper about Loopy training. I should assign this to Alexandra Kerlin. She knows a lot about Loopy <laughs> training, right?" Because um, that would clearly be a conflict of interest. But the reviewers don't. So the reviewers have no idea who wrote the paper, and they are tasked with determining the rigor of the paper. And so. Do the things that we say about the connections with the behavior analysis literature hold true? Are we citing material appropriately? Is the paper a good intellectual contribution? And they make recommendations that go back to the associate editor. And then we got those and a letter from the associate editor asking us to make some revisions to the paper. And from there, we made those revisions and you send it, we sent it back in and it was accepted. So yeah, you do a lot of work before you know for sure if it's going to actually be published. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you've got to enjoy the process, Mm -hmm. at least a little bit, um, because not all papers get accepted for publication.
2: It's very exciting. And so, but you said before it's available for the scientific community, but what about the general public? Can they access it?
1: We had a long conversation about, again, thinking about the assumptions that you make. So as someone who's affiliated with the university, our libraries are robust that, you know, scientifically, like, it's easy for me to get papers. I think Alex jokes that this is my role now in the clinics is like, somebody (laughs) reference the paper, Claire will post it. Um, So it is easy for scientists to access things. And I think a barrier to connecting Mm. animal trainers with the scientific literature is an access barrier. This is one of the things that we talk about in paper. So we will be following what's called a green open access option. And so green open access means that there's an embargo period on the paper. And then after that embargo period, we're able to post it. Um, So I have a reminder set in my calendar to send Alex an email um, when our embargo period is up so that we don't both forget to get it posted. So hopefully it will eventually be available broadly so that it's not just scientists and people who have access kind of behind the paywalls to get it. Because it's very expensive to access the peer-reviewed literature, unfortunately, um, if you're not affiliated with a university or an institution where you get that access.
2: And typically an embargo like that would be how long? So we're in a 12 month embargo. Oh, that's too Uh, long. I I agree. Uh, Okay, 12 months people to wait for this. (laughs) 12 months or
1: you can email the authors and we can respond to um, email. So we can't post it publicly, but we can share privately. Um, And so if you email one of us, we can certainly send it to you right away so that people who are really interested in it can have it right away. The other thing that's a possibility um, is at least for me, and this is going to be true for a lot of scholars, um, we have research gate portals. So if you are interested in finding something that is behind a paywall and you don't want to pay $40 for it because most Articles now are $40 each, which is a lot of money to pay for something. This is why we thought our abstract had to be so, so really good, is so that people knew what they were getting themselves into. But you can email, in almost all cases, you can email the corresponding author. That information is usually available if you look up the paper online, or you can go on to ResearchGate or any of the kind of parallel sites. And often they'll allow you to contact the author and with direct contacts with an author, the author can share the paper with you. And so if you're trying to get access to things that that look promising online, and when you're looking on a Google Scholar search or whatever, and it's behind a paywall, contacting the author is a really good way to get access to those without having to pay uh, an arm and a leg or a small fortune, just to get a handful of papers.
2: And are those emails usually welcomed by the authors or is it like, extra work? No, <laughs> or I Or it know, depends on the author, I suppose.
1: I suppose it depends on the author. So I will only speak for myself, which is I think a lot of scientific scholarship happens a little bit in a vacuum. So you do a, a lot of work on something, you know, thinking about the paper, the, this paper, which didn't involve primary data collection, right? So these are right. we're not having to design an experiment and go through the ethics approval and gather all the mm. data and analyze all the data. So it's really one of the faster papers to write, still takes countless mm. hours. And then you publish it and you sit around and go, Did any did anybody read it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Has anyone contributed? And so there are some major scientific scholars who kind of stopped publishing in the scientific literature and switched over to publishing books and, and other things where you have kind of a better metric of whether or not anybody is you have some buying feedback. it, reading it. You have some feedback. Yeah. Mm. So for me, I think when people request a paper, it's like, oh good, somebody, okay. somebody was interested in that paper. And it's interesting to see when those requests come. So I wrote a paper several years ago now that was a little bit like the loopy training paper. Actually, it was a conceptual paper that talked about whether or not we should really be considering differences between applications of behavioral principles and the basic science, right? So how connected are these and should they be two separate domains? And I argue that they shouldn't be two separate domains, but that paper got cited earlier this year in a, in a pretty, a paper that's being pretty influential. And I got Probably 35 requests for the paper. You know, it's been published for many years now, okay. um, and so it's interesting to see when things kind of come back mm-hmm. into
2: vogue. Uh, and so you were happy to get those those requests. Happy to
1: get those requests, mm-hmm. right? It means that someone is is interested in your work. They're picking it up. They're one step closer to reading it. You never know if they actually read it, but at least they have it now and they can read it. So, mm-hmm. okay. and I think increasing access is just such an important piece right like if we want people to use our science to inform what they do we've got to give them access to it
2: and so after the embargo where would it be available so after the embargo
1: my hope and i will i will leave this up to alex and watch her facial expressions as i say this um, but my hope is that it could go on the clicker center website somewhere
0: people could access it there okay so at that point we can make it much more easily accessed which is and that is it it, the irony is we were talking about how do you connect these two communities how do you make the research the work that's being done in the field of behavioral analysis more accessible and then here's this big obstacle article and we uh and we
2: have a barrier well in a way it's it's teasing marketing you know (laughs) teasing people you have to wait for it's like when when a television production, you have to wait till next year to see what happens. That's right,
0: <laughs> and and a year will go by and nothing flat, and we'll go. Oh, you mean I? Uh, it's already that time where, where we can put it up on the on the website. It's really fun. I was, and it was interesting as we were going through spending multiple Zoom meetings on just the abstract, or and then we'd, we'd go through. A section, and we think, yep, got that one sorted, got that one solved. And then, next Zoom meeting, we'd be back looking at that same paragraph, that same sentence. You know, what are we saying here? Is this really what we want to be saying? And then it was always the what are the connections that you found interesting? And what were the research areas that you explored and looked at that were connecting to the loopy training. Looking at the differences, for example, in the magazine training versus the reinforcement process that we have with our, with our animals. Where are things connected? Where do that, they diverge? And then I think you made the comment in the article that oftentimes in experiments, the reinforcement process is not well defined, not well described, and, and probably it should be. Yeah, I think it should be. Um, So you mentioned
1: magazine training for listeners who don't know what magazine training is. So magazine training is the name of the process that's used in basic behavior analytic work. So this is in Skinner boxes to teach the, the learner to approach wherever the food is. And the food is called a food magazine. So that's why it's called magazine training. It makes it sound like we're teaching rats to like sit around and read some fun magazine, but that's not the case. It's teaching the animals to approach the the food magazine or food hopper. It's also called hopper training, food training, feeder training rapidly. And without anything, without any unwanted responses. And so that turn of phrase might make you for those people who are familiar with loopy training, go like, wait, the animal approaches the food and consumes the food rapidly without any other responses unwanted responses that starts to sound like the portion of a clean loop on the reinforcement side. Mm-hmm. And so when we got talking about that, I was like, oh, that sounds a lot like the old magazine training literature. Um, and so I started to explore some of that. So a couple of interesting things about magazine training. Um, one is that magazine training was the literature that we cite for magazine training and the, the astute reader will note that a lot of it is from the 1960s, early 1970s. And that's because that's when people were really thinking and talking about magazine training and magazine training isn't described in a lot of contemporary behavior analytic articles. And when I talk to my colleagues who work primarily with animals and opera chambers, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's because we know how to, you know, we know how to do it. Everybody knows how to do it. So... Those pieces um, of the training don't get a lot of attention, I think, in the literature. But for folks who have been listening to the podcast series with Michaela recently, you know that some of the details about how that training happens might influence the outcomes of what then happens subsequently in the experiment. And in my own personal experience, when I was in graduate school, we had a faculty member who was... a an operant conditioning guy who left the university and he gave my advisor a bunch of operant chambers and we inherited um, the, the chambers and the rats, but we were not people who did animal work. And we're, you know, we're astute scientists. We figure we could we can figure this out. We're interested in questions. I've always been interested in, in kind of these bridgy questions. And one of the pieces that we were interested in were inconsistencies in reinforcer delivery systems. And so we put the rats in the chambers and we started delivering reinforcers kind of inconsistently to see what impact that would have. Our rats learned nothing. They learned nothing. We got the messiest, incomprehensible data ever. And we went to another more experienced scientist at that point and said, like, what is we can't get control with any of the contingencies. Like our rats aren't learning anything. We don't understand. And the the more experienced scientist was like, well, tell me more about how you magazine trained. And we were like, tell you more about what? <laughs> because we had... <laughs> You know, we knew that magazine training was a thing, but we were replicating literature that didn't have a lot of emphasis on magazine training, and we hadn't done a good job teaching the reinforcement side of the loop, and we got a disaster of an experiment because of it. And so, all of these little details are just so important, but we overlook them. I think so we don't we don't do a, a great job of describing the details of magazine training and the contemporary work in the animal side. And I have almost never seen a study on the human side. So um, Alex, she mentioned that most of my work is, is with in schools with kids who, where they've described how we've taught the child to access reinforcers that we're providing, right? Like, so you are getting access to particular reinforcers and we're chewing this deliberately to try to improve your behavior how are we teaching you where to go to access those or how you get them? And I think um, the first time that I have heard a teacher talk about that was when Lucy was on the podcast, right? And so just the extent to which we're not teaching people about it and we're not talking about it in the peer-reviewed literature using reinforcers in schools is just so incredibly interesting to me. It seems like we may be We may be missing something really important that would help to facilitate the success of our learners.
2: Was there something in the article about in the 60s literature, when they were doing the magazine training, some of the experiments were contingent, the 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 uh, the reinforcer would be delivered contingent upon a specific response and some were not some were not contingent can you talk about I thought that was interesting since we're on that subject, just a little parenthesis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's two general ways that the delivery of the reinforcer is described in magazine training in the magazine training literature. Neither of them comport perfectly with what we would do in loopy training. So one is just on a time, just based on time, right? So the, the food hopper comes up once a minute and it doesn't matter what the learner is doing. The food hopper comes up once a minute. Interestingly, our food hoppers make a click sound um, so if you like go on youtube and you look for um, videos of operant chambers there's a distinctive mechanical click because of the way that the food um, hoppers operate so there's also this interesting conditioned reinforcer and you can use just the click of the the food um, hopper or the food magazine to as a conditioned reinforcer perhaps
2: so you're marking nothing the machine is marking anything nothing
1: Yeah. The passage of time, right? So every minute the food hopper comes up and some people, some, some notable scientists in our, in our field, Jack Michael among them said, argued that that wasn't a great way to do it, that you want to operate the feeder at particular points. But what was interesting in, in reading his early writing about magazine training. So in the late, in the late sixties was he would say like, well, you want to wait for the rat to move away. the hopper and then you want to operate the food hopper the food magazine but it wasn't a specific response that he was looking for you know so it wasn't like the animal starts to turn in a particular direction and then you could really as you it's interesting to think about could you work towards shaping the instrumental response that you want like the the lever press as you're doing the magazine training or the hopper training. And I bet you could um, if you were more strategic about when you operated the, the magazine hopper. But I think it worked. People may argue that it like worked well enough and somebody didn't have to sit there. you know. So if you just operate it every minute, eventually the animal learns something and they learn to approach the hopper. But what else is it that they're learning, I think, and how does that history contribute to their later performance? I think are all really interesting questions so to summarize because i feel like that was a very wandering discussion there's two ways that it that magazine training has been commonly described so operating like food at random points or food based on some other response but not a specific response um and what we couldn't find was the magazine the food hopper being operated for a specific response like we would do in, in loopy training once the animal had learned how to to um, consume the food generally. And I think that's an interesting avenue for future research, right? So what do you get differently when you use these specific responses even early on when you're teaching the reinforcement side of
0: the loop? Yeah, that was definitely an, an, an intriguing area to explore and then there was the percentile schedules for for shaping i thought that was interesting that comparison that you were making
1: yeah so i don't know if you remember alex i sent you a video at one point and i was like if you ever want to see a frustrated horse here's a picture of a frustrated horse and it was because i was using you must have i'm surprised that you are still willing to affiliate with me Um, so at the (laughs) (laughs) you you learn so much over a year. It turns out. Okay. So what I was trying to do is I was trying to teach an extended duration of standing calm. So this is a normal thing to try to teach a horse. I'm trying to teach a horse. I should be, I should be cognizant about what side of my life I'm talking about. When I talk about things, I was trying to teach one of my horses to stand by me for an extended period, being calm. And I thought that I would Do that using a percentile schedule. So, a percentile schedule is a way to shape based on a mathematical progression of criteria. So, in a percentile schedule, you specify mathematically the probability of reinforcement so how dense you want the reinforcement schedule to be and then you use the most recent values of whatever that is um, and you plug it into this equation and it spits out what your current criteria should be which sounds fabulous right like when you're thinking about novice implementers this sounds great It, it
2: sounds like you're not looking at your learner at all
1: Well, so the criteria, so your most recent criteria are coming from your learner. So let me be, let me be more concrete. I wanted a horse who was standing quietly. And so I, and I said, I wanted to reinforce about 80% of their responses. So I then take the last M number of sessions. So I can, in this particular case, I could say like the last five times that we've tried this, how long were you able to stand? I put those in my equation and then it rank orders them and then tells me what the what the criteria oh, okay. should be so like what is the what's the how likelihood then, right how many seconds should this be based on the last five things okay. that so
2: you are taking into account your learner so it is
1: it is taking into account your learner And I had done some research on percentile schedules. We've used percentile schedules to shape duration of academic writing with kids. So for kids who are, who don't have a lot of of duration within the activity, we've used percentile schedules to keep them writing longer. And the nice thing about percentile schedules is that they adjust up and down based on your learner's current performance. So they, they sound like they're a a really wonderful thing. Um, And and one of my dear friends who does an academic learning center has had great success um, with using percentile schedules to improve academic performance with her students. And I thought this would be a fun way to shape duration of standing quietly next to me. Um, but it turns out that there were two pieces of that, that the way that I deployed it, that deviated from a better, perhaps, loopy training approach. One was that I was focused on a non-behavior. So I wanted a horse who was standing quietly beside me and it was not paying much attention to what the horse was doing so long as they were not moving around and not you know, mugging me and doing other things. and If they were doing that, then I would reset my timer. So I was really focused on the absence of a behavior rather than building a specific behavior. And I think that was a really big, that was a really big misstep. Now you could do a percentile schedule like we did with academic writing where you were focused on an ongoing response. So that was a flub on my part, not necessarily having to do with percentile schedules. But the other piece was I ended up getting way too much exposure to extinction. And so I have this video of one of my very delightful, very pleasant horses in this like full on extinction induced emotional responding terror And of course, every time that he would engage in that kind of response, I would reset my timer and we would, we ended up in this like huge long period of extinction um, because my criteria wasn't updating fast enough to keep up with my learner. So I think it's really interesting to compare people have touted percentile schedules as being great for novices because they don't require, because they're math. Mm-hmm. So it will tell you, this is what your criteria is. It, it takes the judgment out of what the next criteria should be allegedly. Um, but I think it's a really interesting point of comparison to a more loopy training approach to shaping where you're really focused on building new responses from their smallest units and putting them together to build duration rather than looking at building duration just based on an increment in the amount of time or the amount of criteria, right? Can you add new little pieces in that help keep the learner engaged? Nonetheless, I think there's some really interesting parallels too that are worth exploring. So I mentioned that a friend of mine does a lot of work with percentile schedules with academic responses for kids. And she, if you watch her with the kids, she builds beautiful loops with them. And so Mm -hmm. she, the way that she describes astute, sensitive use of percentile schedules is that it builds fluent responding without any intervening unwanted behavior. And I was like, well, that's the definition of a clean loop. So there's something there to be further explored, I think, and it would be neat to do some comparisons. Of loopy training and percentile approaches, particularly if you were working with a collaborator um, like my friend, uh, who is is very sophisticated with the use of percentile schedules. Um, and it might be fun to do to do some of that starting with humans and then pull it back into the horse training world, kind of on a more isolated basis.
2: I think you have to do that because you know I still. Here, even with very skilled trainers, duration is, is challenging, especially, I think, with, the, with and maybe not only, but duration, when you're asking, for instance, in, in your example, a horse to stay still, I think it's there's a challenge there and we don't understand everything. And it would be wonderful for you to do something on that. I would love to to hear more about that.
0: You know, some of those, some of the behaviors that we want long duration for, I mean, if you're just standing there watching the clock go, you know, tick by, it's boring to do. Okay, I got five seconds and now I'm headed for six seconds. We've all stood in front of the microwave watching the the seconds countdown for those people who use microwaves. I know for some people going microwaves, you never use those, but we've all stood in front of a clock and watched the seconds tick by and said, oh, five seconds, it's a very long time when you're paying attention to it. So duration can be really boring. And so to find effective ways to expand duration and to look at different strategies, you know, Dominique, you're absolutely right. Claire, you have to do that research. You do. (laughs)
2: Everybody will wait for that
1: one. Well, my first attempt at it was, a, was a big fail. I will say that. Um, so I'll have to do it if I, if I embark on it again, I will have to do it differently than how I did <laughs> before. It's interesting because there's nuance how these percentile schedules are run that I think makes a difference. Um, so percentile schedules have been used to treat some some very socially significant behavior, including smoking cessation, increasing exercise. So because they produce gradual changes in some quantitative dimension of behavior, they're useful for things that you don't want to change abruptly, or that would be detrimental if they changed abruptly. In the smoking cessation literature, um, the criteria generally is cigarettes smoked per day, and so they inc- they increment the number of cigarettes that the the, the person is quote unquote allowed to smoke um, every day based on what has happened previously, and they they titrate it down um, over the course of time, and that is very feasible to do uh, because your math isn't updating every minute of every day.
2: Yeah, we, we're too much in a rush when we want to, probably for the reasons that Alex just said, you know, five seconds when you're just waiting there doing nothing seems like forever, but we're in too much in a rush, I think, when we want well, to do. I know that the best duration I've taught was unintentional. You know, when you don't care so much and you end up with an animal after years that have fabulous duration on just, you know, resting there or, but it was not like an intentional formal session where you got to lying there for half an hour. It was just kind of part of the life that you shared and you just engineered it well, but maybe we're, we're too much in a rush we're just increasing too quickly I don't know what it is we'll wait for your research
1: yeah absolutely I think that that's true about my own training too Dominique which is I have a horse right now that has a fabulous stay with a really long duration I'm, I'm astonished at how long I can leave him and like tell him to stay put and he stays put and I have no idea how I got it um <laughs> I, I will have to really think through what we did to build that. But I do think it's very interesting to think about how we arrange environments that make learners successful, but that are also practical for the implementer, right? So how do we take folks who want have a particular thing that they want a a horse to do, or they want a general learner to do and equip them to have the, the skills to be able to do that? And is it possible that we can take shortcuts like using mathematical criteria like percentile schedules? Or is it really the case that, no, there's too much foundational work and there is too much um, in the moment adjustment that you need to make uh, in relation to what your learner is doing right now, this very second, that you need to spend the time to build the entire sophisticated repertoire and, and you might need to wait to build that super long duration until you have a bunch of other training skill sets under your own belt to be able to do it. And I think that's an, that's an interesting question because we do live in a time where people want outcomes and they want them yesterday. Uh, so I think, and I'm sure that that this is something that Alex you run into is, you know, when it takes time to build things from the ground up, it, people get impatient and there's a balance between getting people to experience the successes that they see for themselves and being able to do it in a way that is truly constructional and based on everybody being able to access reinforcers the implementer the learner everybody having a good time in the situation
0: time to stop for now There is so much packed into the statement that Claire has just made, but we're going to wait until next time to unpack it and to look at some of the other rabbit holes we went down as we wrote the article. We never did give the title. It's Connecting Animal Trainers and Behavioral Analysts Through Loopy Training, and it appears in the Journal of the Experimental Analysis of Behavior. A year from now, I'll be able to post it on my website, For those of you who can't wait, we have posted a link to the article in the show notes, so you'll still be able to read it. And remember, September 2nd through 5, 2022, I am hosting our online dressage camp with Anya Barron, Michaela Hempen, and Anita Snay. Please visit my website, theclickercenter.com, for more information on that event. And until next time, train well and have fun with your-